Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Aparuta de sang amatasa tawara ye sodavanta bamunjantu satang. In this uh, requesting a uh, uh, Dhamma talk or desana, is uh, when the Buddha, after his enlightenment, he was uh, uh, contemplating what he, you know, the state of enlightenment, and he, and he thought to himself, "There's nobody. What I've realized is subtle, and and there's no way it can be taught to anybody." And uh, uh, the assumption that it wasn't worth even trying to uh, teach, and then. Brahma Sahampati, the Brahma God, came, uh, listened, heard the Buddha thinking like this, and he said, Please, uh, for the welfare, there are those with only a little dust in their eyes that teach the Dhamma for the welfare of those. There are those with only a little dust in their eyes. And so, This is, uh, and the Brahma Sampati kind of represents the, the ability too. I mean, the, it's uh, speech and being able to express and communicate the, that kind of deity. So, and this is, so in this way, this is like the, uh, the uh, and, and Brahma represents like a deity or, or a god. Uh, so therefore, it's from that, from which is from the, the uh, the celestial realms was the, the Buddha was invited to teach. So in his first sermon, his first sermon, uh, he taught the Four Noble Truths. That uh, Dhammajaka Pavatana Sutta is the, is his first sermon, and and uh, that particular sermon is um, the thing that we've used most in our in our tradition with Lung Po Cha was we we uh, his whole emphasis was on examining the suffering the causes cessation and the way of non-suffering uh, and and not just not through scholastic endeavors uh, so much even though that that's part of it but the actual penetrating it, uh, putting it into practice, uh, contemplating it. And of course, in there is enough suffering in daily life for enlightenment. You don't need to be uh, beaten up and abused and mistreated and tortured. We have terrible things happening. You just uh, in, in a monastery, for example, they contemplate life in, in a Buddhist monastery. 
a lot of suffering in a Buddhist monastery. <laughs> and yet when I look around, I think, you know, here, uh, like at Wat Bapong, where I lived with Ajahn Chah, and I used to suffer a lot there. But when I'd really contemplate the suffering, I realized on the level of what's necessary in that, it was a really good place to be, you know. It had, you know, you had the whole emphasis was on practice and more moral, uh, strong sense of morality and discipline and commitment. The teacher was was very wise. Uh, it was supported. You had enough food and enough requisite for your your daily needs. What was I suffering about? And all I suffered about was I didn't like to do this, I didn't want to do that, or this person upset me, or I felt offended by what this person said, and, uh, and uh, the weather was too hot, or the, or the food wasn't good enough. Or the, there's always, uh, I could create enormous amounts of suffering over this kind of stuff. But when I really, Anajan Chah is very skillful at getting you to see that. Like he, uh, people, Thai people always ask, how could he teach you, when, uh, teach you uh, Dhamma when he couldn't speak English and you couldn't speak Thai? And the, the question, how, how did he teach you? But it wasn't, it, it, the first month uh, that I stayed with him, there was a Thai monk who could translate, uh, who could speak English. And so um, I wasn't getting instruction from Ajahn Chah, and then it was being translated into English. But after a month, that monk left the monastery, and then, then I was there, you know, the only, nobody could speak English in the monastery except me. <laughs> and then there was everybody could speak Thai except me. <laughs> so, so I did learn. I learned to speak Thai, but but for the first several years before it was really uh, uh, easy for me, there I still learned an enormous amount those first two years, just through the life. And the way Ajahn Chah taught the reflective style that he used, uh, getting, <coughs> getting you to look at yourself. So in some of my books, I talk like in Jitta Viveka about the washing the master's feet and, this, and our stubborn refusal to participate in this stupid ritual. And, and then suddenly I saw how I was creating suffering around something that wasn't suffering in itself. Just my own conceit, pride, stubbornness, I was creating suffering around something that was a quite a joyful experience if you kind of went, put yourself into it and really kind of, you know, get a chance to wash Ajahn Chah's feet. It was a, it was a joyous event rather than a, than a miserable experience once I changed my attitude towards it. So this, this level of suffering, or when the story about getting malaria, where I had malaria and then I thought, I can't practice, I'm suffering too much, I'm too miserable uh, with this disease. 
And then Ajahn Chah would get me to look at this, the, you know, is this disease really that bad? Or are you making, a, making it much worse than it really is? So I started contemplating just the, the sensations, the fevers, the, and the mental state, a lot of fear. Because you, you hear terrible stories about people who get malaria and go crazy and their brains explode and they die. And so you, you know, you, and my mind easily can, can, can gravitate to the worst possible version very quickly. So I, you know, I could, I was a lot, there's a lot of fear and, uh, and also just uh, aversion to the, to the weakness, the innervation, the, the fevers. But when I started actually looking at the actual experience of malaria, it was, it wasn't so bad really, I didn't mind it. I could stand it. And the suffering was the fear of it or the resentment or wanting to get rid of it, trying to, uh, feeling that I couldn't practice anymore because I had malaria, that kind of, that kind of suffering was what I created onto the disease or the sensations or, or the experience of that disease. So it became very clear within a very short time to me what is just a natural state of experience like fevers, pain, innovation, and so forth. As just that I didn't create. That was just what it was happening. And then, but the suffering was uh, aversion, resentment, fear, stubbornness, conceit. And this is what I'd create onto this, the, the, the disease. So I, I began to realize I didn't have to create that. I could stop creating that suffering. And then I found I could actually, you know, Bear, I mean, sickness or weakness or that is, or pain. Uh, once my once I stopped resisting, fighting, resenting, and I could, it was endurable. I could bear it. Could even enjoy some of those malarial fevers were quite kind of all right. <laughs> And it feels so wonderful when they break. You know, you, it goes up to this crescendo, and suddenly the fever breaks. And uh, you know, it's all hot and sweaty, and and then suddenly it breaks. And then, like everything's wet after that. And something, all water pours out of your body from the pores, and uh, you have this wonderful coolness. Feels so good to, for the fever to have broken, you know. I could enjoy the the coolness of it. Here in England, you know, a place like Amravati, the the standards people have are very high. Here in you know, Western people have very, they're kind of perfectionists in the what they expect from life. So, 
you know, that there's always a kind of demand for, for a very high, to maintain a high standard, uh, and which is very exhausting. So monks and nuns burn out regularly here. <laughs> 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 because they, they <laughs> because the society we're living in is, is very, you know, is and and we're conditioned to think we're we're somehow not not good enough or not doing our duty or we're not you know, something wrong with us if we're not trying to really keep the standard that it's very best and it's kind of holding it there and then, and then people fall apart and then and then they and then we then they blame it on the monastery <coughs> but actually it, you know it's the it's it's the kind of the mental processes we create around it and and our tendency towards towards making uh, life into hard work because we d- we do demand a lot and expect a lot having high standards takes you know is, is to keep life always at a high standard is uh, takes enormous amounts of effort and money and everything. <laughs> 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 so you can't do we need, you know, what what is the standard that the Buddha established for, for Buddhist monks? So that we have what are called the four requisites. Uh, so we, we have four requisites that we reflect from the 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 what what do you need to survive as a human being? Well, you you need uh, food. One of the basic requirement, isn't it? In order to survive, you need something to eat. So the Buddha said, uh, "I allow you to have an alms bowl. You can go in to uh, inhabited areas and people, uh, but you mustn't annoy people. You mustn't go around begging. You mustn't." Uh, uh, you must go through the the villages or the towns in a way that isn't annoying to people or bothering them, but in a dignified way that maybe they might come out and offer you some of their food. So, that's a, because we we can't we are alms mendicants. We don't have a way of uh, like getting our own food, buying food or that. So, food was allowed as bindabata food. Meaning, what people drop into your alms bowl is your food. So, and then you, you to accept whatever. You know, you get whatever is offered. You're not supposed to go to the houses where you know that they have the best cooks, <laughs> and then go <laughs> order the rich people's houses, and, and then ignore the poor. You go, who's ever there wanting to put some food in your bowl, whether they're rich or poor, or they're good cooks or horrible cooks, <laughs> accept it. So that's not a very high standard, is it? It's pretty, that's about as low standard as you can get for food. Mm. 
So it's a it's a low standard that we're working from. Then in terms of uh, you've got to wear something, and the Buddha wasn't into uh, naked asceticism. He criticized, and the Jains uh, at that time used to walk around naked, and, and the Buddha didn't think very highly of that. <laughs> And it's hard to imagine doing that here in England. Although <laughs> <laughs> the climate with the society would would not would think would not be inspired by that. <laughs> so <laughs> so we so he allowed something to wear. Uh, he could wear something, and so then the the standard for cloth is a, a rag. Bangzakula cloth, which is is uh, the kind of cloth that people throw away. The bhikkhus could go and gather rags that people had thrown out, or that were wrapped around corpses in charnel grounds, things like that. They can't get much lower than that. That's a pretty low standard for clothes, isn't it? And then uh, shelter. Root of a tree. So that's 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 as low as you can get too. And then, <laughs> and where do you hear about what he said about medicine? <laughs> this will really turn you off. And so the lowest standard for medicine is uh, fermented urine. You can't get any lower than fermented urine. <laughs> so, so our standard, now this is the significance of this is that the four requisites are based on the lowest standard, like what the refuse, the stuff that, the, the stuff people throw out, or, or it's, not, it's not based on, on, a, on a high standard, on quality and, and uh, the best that society has. And uh, strange enough, like urine is a, is a medicinal substance. Nowadays, people are more like people talk about it, using it as a, as a, as medicine. But uh, for a long time, I mean, most time people find that just appalling. In fact, I've been asked not to say that in public talks in England. <laughs> to say homeopathic remedies or something. <laughs> Or natural medicine, <laughs> but I I trust you're all strong enough to take this and <laughs> not lose faith in Buddhism. And but the this uh, the, but the the irony of it is that people will always give you some much the best they can. People. I've never seen that in Thailand or in India or in or here in England, where people just give you, you know, just want to give you the the lowest standard, or that you have to, uh, you know, go around scrounging for bits of rags, uh, uh, you know, or, or in order to make a robe. So the Buddha did allow people offered you material, nice material, you can accept it. So we have the katina ceremony at the end of the 
Vasa retreat, which is a, a ceremony based on offering cloth to the Sangha, which we can receive. And people usually try to buy for us, give us the nicest cloth that they think. So like this robe here, when I was in Thailand last uh, winter, this lady, uh, I know, Thai woman, she found this cloth, uh, pure cotton, very fine cloth, <laughs> and had it made up by a professional uh, robe maker and very beautifully sewn everything and gave it to me, a whole set of robes. And, and it's made to look like rags, you know, it's dyed a kind of mucky, unattractive color so that I'm not kind of, so I don't look too attractive and, <laughs> and sexy or anything like that. So, but the, but the actual, the quality of the material is very high. It's not, not like stuff you get off a corpse. But I didn't ask for this either. I didn't, I didn't go around saying, I'm, you know, that I want the best quality of material. But people will offer that. Medicine here, like in the, here in, in England. The, uh, the National Health, I never complain about that. I'm very grateful for N A NHS and I mean, uh, really, we, we were quite fortunate to have such a health service if you've lived in other countries. And, uh, and then um, when I have been ill, people come forth and offer me private treatments and all kinds of things. Uh, so I've never had to use fermented urine. <laughs> and shelter. So so that this is this is this is a very important thing like for our samana, for the monks and nuns to reflect on to to develop a sense of contentment with what they have, what we have. But then here at Amrabhati, the we most of the monks and nuns are grateful and content for what they have on that level. But then the idea of having to uh, like run the office and and newsletter and and uh, help the lay people and and be a teacher and and uh, how we can manage the gardens and cut the grass and this and this, endless things of of uh, that that we become involved in uh, because of the standard of the society is the standard is quite high for maintenance even just on a level of maintenance but then in terms of living here, then we, we also respect the society that we're living in. So we, we aren't going to, to uh, you know, we feel uh, that we want to be uh, citizens or members of this society that is, that is uh, that do respect the culture and the, the way things are done. So these things are quite all right in themselves, but how much suffering do we create around them? 
And so this is, we, this is what we, when we reflect, when we contemplate, we, we have to bring into consciousness just what is necessary, what is the basic standard, what is, the, what is uh, our responsibility in terms of being a Buddhist of a, a monk or nun, in terms of the tradition, and what, and how to live within this society in a way that we're not being intimidated and and propelled along in useless activities, uh, or how to accommodate and meet the needs of a society that has a growing interest in the Buddha Dhamma. So this takes time and wisdom and reflection on on the experiences that we have and learning from through trial and error. So for me, I mean, I've lived here at Amabati now nearly 13 or 14 years now. 13 years. It's about the longest time I've ever lived in any one place in my life. 13 years in one place. And uh, even when, as a layman, I never lived 13 years in one place. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, but in, and then but the practice, and we've seen a whole kind of change take place from moving here and the kind of, uh, the kind of vast, all these empty buildings and, and the way we went about things and, and uh, so forth up to the present time. And I'm, I'm one of the few survivors. <laughs> 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 In this practice, then, we, we need to learn about ourselves and our own limitations, both as individuals, as human beings, as, as males, as females, whatever we, in uh, reflective meditation, you're, you're contemplating the way things are. And, and, and it's not a judgmental process. You're not making judgments, value judgments about it, but just noticing the, the, what limitation is. So having a human body is a limitation, isn't it? You can, you know, one can create all kinds of ideas very quickly and grand plans, but uh, to put them, to make them materialize, it's, it's very, takes a lot, long time and very difficult. So the, this, the being, uh, having, being incarcerated in a, in a form, this kind of form, is, is a very strong limitation. Then we limit it in terms of sila, or morality, so that we're, we're, we're learning to use our, our bodies and our speech for doing good, doing what is 
skillful, what is useful, what is kind, what is generous. And we're refraining from using our body and speech for doing harmful things, destructive things, uh, cruel things. It's taking responsibility then for, for, how we li- for what we do, <coughs> what we do with this body. We can do whatever we want with it. But now we're, 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 using, we're, we're committed to this sila, or this morality, which is a restraint, isn't it? It's a limitation placed on action and speech. But not as a limitation to suppress or deny, but for reflection. So in, in terms of, of uh, experience, then the, the life will, will, will receive the results of our karma in whatever we're doing. So we may determine to do good and refrain from doing evil, but we still can have very evil desires or temptations, bad thoughts. So in terms of morality, there's not having bad thoughts isn't breaking the, isn't immoral. Even having immoral thoughts is not immoral. But because morality is about action and speech, it's, the, it's what we do, the active side. So in this way, we begin to see even we begin to see the dhamma of even our bad thoughts and feelings and emotions in terms of letting them come into consciousness and recognizing the presence and being able to accept them for what they are. And then they then they go, then they cease naturally. So this is like with the when I was talking about metta yesterday. This is a skillful means or an upaya in which we develop a patient acceptance of, of, of oftentimes very painful, unpleasant, uh, miserable states, emotional, mental states. And I found this this quite a revelation to me because I I was always under the impression that that you know one is in a, say and from my background you're so identified with your thoughts that what you're thinking you you feel is you know is what you are so when you're thinking bad thoughts then you think you're a bad person so I used to get very confused because. Uh, uh, I used to think I want to be a good person. Why do I have such bad thoughts? And I try to resist, you know, try to get rid of them and fight and struggle, and then, and then, uh, and you know, for you know, you can do that for a while, and then you then it it gets uh, you can't do it anymore, and then you get kind of overwhelmed with anger or resentment or or terrible thoughts. And then you feel guilty, guilt-ridden, and terrible that you're a terrible person. Now you think a good person wouldn't have such thoughts, so I must not be a very good person. 
because I can't imagine a good person having these kind of thoughts. <laughs> so, so I must not, you know, I'm, I'm not a good person. And then, then after a while you think, well, maybe I'll just try being a bad person. Since I can't be a good one, I might as well enjoy being bad. <laughs> but then being bad wasn't, wasn't enjoyable. <laughs> so what do you do? Then, then the, this, this, this meditation, this way of reflecting, I found something such a relief, such a wonderful discovery. Uh, and this is this is like the Buddha's. This is, I think, why many of us come to to Buddhist meditation because it it is uh, something that we we intuitively uh, can accept and and use and find it helpful. So in the early years at Wat Bapong with my stubbornness and conceit, my complaining mind and, and, uh, and anger and so forth that would arise. Lumpa Cha, instead of saying, you're a bad monk for having, for, for being like this, he'd, he would get me to look at what, what I'm feeling. And so sometimes he'd really, you know, he'd kind of set you up to make you angry or something. And, uh, and then you'd, then he'd, he'd get you to look at your ang- the anger in terms of Dhamma rather than, it, than through the self-view. So his custom in those days, this was, uh, was he, Around food, they'd have. Uh, we when we'd come back from the alms round, then we'd we'd all give up all our food to a kind of, to one place, and then they, then they divide up the food so that everybody. It was a very communist type of system where everybody gets the same amount, and and uh, we, and Ajahn Chah would even make it more communist than, than the anybody in Russia or China ever thought of by I mean we have these big uh, kind of enameled basins and then and the people would uh, housewives from Uborn and that come with their little tiffin carriers and spend all night making nice little dishes of chicken and curry and fish curry and this and that and then, and then they'd bring them in they offer them and and then go like this, and then Ajahn Chah would have the monks dump it all in this big, in this big bowl, you know, and then stir it all up. So you get this kind of sloshy mass of, of uh, uh, you know, everything mixed in together, and and then we'd ladle it out into the bowls. Take two monks came this big, this big basin, and, and ladle, put a ladle of this stuff in the one bowl, the next bowl, next bowl. And uh, and it was the most repulsive uh, food I've ever had, <laughs> and and so I I thought uh, at first I couldn't eat it. I just couldn't. I felt so repelled by it. 
that I couldn't eat it. And, uh, and I arrived during the mango season. So I lived on mangoes for the first couple of weeks. <laughs> I quite like mangoes and sticky rice. They ate the sticky rice in the northeast Thailand. So mangoes and sticky rice is quite delicious. But then the mangoes ran out. <laughs> and I began to get increasingly more hungry and I was less fussy about what what about food? And I began to learn how to eat this. I thought, I used to tell myself, if I learn to eat this food, I could live anywhere in the world because it's not going to get any worse. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, <laughs> so that was kind of a consolation, you know. It's not going to get any worse than this. So I did learn to eat it, and, uh, and I could begin to see my own, you know, as, as a the way we eat is a very is in silence, and you reflect on it, and you you kind of observe your own what's going on, you know, and and and, uh, and around food, there's a lot of uh, uh, in those early years there was so much uh, greed because when you're living a celibate life and and living under strict venial rules, you don't have much sensual pleasure that is allowed. And so eating is one of the few sensual pleasures <laughs> that, you, that you have during the day. So you, it brings up in all, you, all that kind of desire for sensual pleasure kind of cassettes on the food. And so I found myself getting very kind of, uh, oh, some of the most petty, trivial states of mind if I saw somebody, you know, with somebody passed me by and there was some, some food that was really good and I didn't get any. I could really feel rage. <laughs> but the, the main idea of the teaching was not, not just the, uh, it wasn't stiff upper lip, grin and bear it type of teaching. It was really look at what's happening here. Look at yourself, not, I mean, you know, you know, I could make a case about Ajahn Chah loves to, is a kind of sadist, he likes to torture us. <coughs> because he didn't have to eat that way, he'd, he'd get the kind of little dishes and separate <laughs> things. He'd be sitting up there, you know, with bowls of of noodles and different things around and tasting this and that and uh, we were getting this slop. <laughs> so one could hate Ajahn Chah sometimes. <laughs> because, you know, thing is, he, why, you know, if he's making us do it, then uh, he should do it too. That's a Western idea of being fair. <laughs> it's not fair that he makes us do it, and then, but he doesn't. But then the suffering of that, you know, of that, uh, because of the this this looking at yourself rather than than making uh, then then your attention on on the external, putting all your your critical faculties on the external side. You're looking at how the external affects you. So I learned a lot just on that, just by watching myself. Even though I, I, 
if I wasn't getting all that much instruction in the language. Even though Ajahn Chah was giving long talks in the evening, I couldn't understand any of them. But I could observe myself during those talks. So I became very kind of introspective. And became very much aware of how I created so much suffering around my life. What was happening. Because in terms of the the base, the requisites, the the moral standard, the the asp- the religious aspiration, the teacher, the monks I lived with. They were all very good monks. You know, they were. I mean, even personal. Sometimes I I didn't like them or uh, personality conflicts and that. But they were all trying to be as good as they could be, and they were all. You know, we had this, they were they were good people. So I didn't have a, I couldn't build much of a case, you know, about, you know, uh, blaming them, the monks or the or the lay people that came. So just noticing that, and, and then reflecting on 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 the, the suffering I created, and I and I could really see quite clearly the difference between the horrible food and the suffering I created around the horrible food. Now the worldly person thinks, I'm suffering because this food is terrible. But then the samana doesn't think like that. Even though the food might be terrible, that's the the way it is. But if I'm hating that food, resenting, then that's I'm creating that suffering. And to see the difference, you know, to really see what is this, you know, what we create out of our greed, hatred, and delusion. But then there were times where the food got, you know, everything goes in cycles. So sometimes the We'd be invited into uh, into w- wealthy people's homes for donors, and then they they'd bring out all this. You know, and then we were allowed to kind of relax, and and uh, we could kind of help ourselves with the food and, and passed it around, and and uh, and 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 then you'd kind of find yourself just completely obsessed with the with the, this food, kind of just totally kind of mesmerized by by the good food. And when you knew you were invited to one of these donors with all the, you knew the food was going to be really good, you you'd really be excited and create this excitement in your mind. <laughs> 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 but through reflecting on all that over the, you you begin to see the suffering of of exciting of of anticipating, <coughs> you know, looking forward to it, and and more and more, you know, you 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 begin to find a level of equanimity around food, which is neither, you know, uh, 
which is not being averse or being uh, gluttonous. So now, say the relationship I have to food is quite equanimous because of the of this way of of learning, just from the from the basic need to eat food for survival. So you can live your your body can can have some energy to to uh, live another day. And applying that too. To uh, that's around something as basic as food, but in uh, one thing with uh, say emotional experience, like so many of us uh, say in uh, Western people, it becomes samanas. We come from backgrounds where oftentimes we've had um, a lot of uh, say repressed emotion and where let's say like like anger has been denied or various resentments and so we all come into the sangha with a lot of uh, a lot of uh, emotional baggage as they say and this this began and so this this stuff starts becoming conscious as we in the life of a, of a monastic where you you don't have the, uh, the ability to distract yourself so much you know you don't watch television or have all, a lot of things that that you can just uh, distract yourself by by just when things unpleasant emotions start getting to the into consciousness uh, we you know as a layperson I could easily distract myself into something else so especially uh, I, I imagine now with the computers and televisions it's just be so easy to every time you start being a little upset to switch on the television or do something just to to get to focus on something that it is that will entertain you or or absorb your attention. <clears throat> Many in monastic life, the quality of it is one which is very kind of subdued and where you have to spend a lot of time on your own without any anything and all that much to distract yourself. So you begin to accept these emotional states. Like here on this retreat, I mean, how many of you are just having emotions come up? Hmm during this retreat in the few, few days that we've sat here that are quite unwanted or disturbing that if you were home you could you could avoid and then sometimes we we come to a retreat like this and we we think I'm going to go on this retreat and I'm going to get really peaceful and uh, because one hopes, you know, that meditation takes you to, to a state of bliss, and then, then maybe you find yourself sitting here for two weeks just feeling incredibly angry. And then you think, okay, then you think, it was a terrible meditation. 
<laughs> but I wouldn't describe it as terrible. I think it's a good one because this, 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 is, uh, this is important that we have begin to accept our emotions in, in, full in consciousness rather than just resist and deny and repress them. So, like consciousness is a is a function when, like in the the the, the khandhas, the five aggregates, the 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 body, the feelings, the perceptions, uh, mental formations, and consciousness. When we're born, we're we're born. We have we have a, we have rupa and vijnana operating immediately. Like vijnana is a, a natural function. It's not conditioned. It's not like it's a it's a function in in terms of a natural function. It's not personal. So, and then then as we we acquire, say, and we we have vedana also when we're born. We feel heat and cold, and 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 that the and the vedana increases as we get get uh, as we mature. But then. We have we we get conditioned through sanya and sankara. So we we develop a sense of ourself uh, as we as we grow up. You know, a sense of our self worth of being a a male or a female, being lovable or not, being a, a good boy or a bad boy, being. A, um, uh, you know, whatever we, you know, if we get, if we come from a, a, a dysfunctional family. This is a modern term now. And I saw this video, this American psychologist called Bradshaw, and he's talking about dysfunctionalism. There's a very interesting, he's a very dynamic speaker. In, and I saw this quite a few years ago, and I was sitting there watching this, and suddenly I realized that I'm from a dysfunctional family. <laughs> and I began to realize that actually Amravati is pretty dysfunctional. <laughs> <laughs> So this is uh, like like the, the, the this this is an interesting term because it, in how it's generally used is it's like you you're pretending it's one thing when it's not when something else is going on so you're getting cross messages or mixed messages all the time so your uh, parents say we're happy and we're we love each other a lot but then underlying that they're not happy and they hate each other. <laughs> But they're always saying, we love each other and we're a good family. And, 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 uh, and, and so there's this the whole kind of, and the, the, you're, not, you're not allowed to say, but you don't really love each other. That kind of thing is, if you s- even suggest that, you're kind of punished severely. So you learn very quickly not to, to say those things, like the emperor's new clothes and the little brat that said, <laughs> that saw that the emperor wasn't wearing anything. 
But the dysfunction of the nation was, oh, isn't, the, isn't his robe beautiful? <laughs> it's so, it's such a refined textile. It, 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 the, 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 the shininess of it and the texture is really beautiful. Because they were told that it's so refined that only, the, only really refined people could see it. Everybody wants to feel that they're refined. <laughs> and if you say, I was naked, then it means you're probably not a very refined person. And everybody looked down on you. So we have this, in, in, in meditation, we, we this, this also comes up, all the things we've held down, never admitted, or, or that have been socially denied, or through our families, or ethnic conditioning. So then, then this uh, developing this awareness of these emotions with this attitude of metta. Because at first it can be quite disturbing and distressing. When I first started meditating or, or all this repressed anger started coming up. And uh, and I was alone in this little kuti in the northeast Thailand, and this is before I met Ajahn Chah, in this little kuti uh, for about a year by myself. And uh, the first couple of months was, uh, was utter hell for me. It was just uh, because I had nothing to do. I c- and all day long, they bring me the food to the kuti, so I didn't go anywhere. And and there was nothing to do, nobody to talk to, nobody could speak English. And and then all the people there in the monastery were told they shouldn't talk to the meditators. So there I was, and nothing to do all day except I'd do this anapanasati, and, and then I just get start, you know, get so bored with that, and then. Then I'd look for something to do. I'd start, I'd start, you know, cleaning up the cootie, and then I'd, could, you know, and there wasn't all that much to clean. Then, <laughs> then you know, you'd kind of fussing with this and doing that, and and then I was given all these gifts when I was ordained as a samanera, and people gave me a, a, a velvet pillow, and then a, something else, something else, and and they brought all this stuff with me and put it in the cootie. So then I started arranging all this stuff just for something to do, you know, and trying with the pillow here and the candle holder. <laughs> anything, anything to find something to do. <laughs> and uh, and then, then sitting and meditating and then bring up this negativity all the time. Where before, when I wasn't caught in such a, such a kind of isolated and restricted place, I was, uh, you know, I could get quite peaceful, uh, quite quite uh, tranquilized. But then, a couple of months, I wasn't getting any tranquility, but just uh, uh, this anger. A lifetime of denied and repressed anger. And it was shocking, because it was it was pretty ugly stuff, 
you know, and I wanted to be a good person, wanted to be a good monk. And there I was sitting there, you know, day after day with, with, with so much rubbish and uh, painful mental states that I, that I was, uh, you know, I thought this is, uh, this is hell. This is a, a really what hell is like. But then something in me also knew that that because I was contemplating that as Dhamma that it was that if I if I kept kind of being patient with it then it would uh, probably cease sometime. And so it, it and I remember when it did cease, then it was like a something like a whole kind of uh, a state of mind occurring which everything looked incredibly beautiful and radiant for about three or four days. And they, uh, I just gave up trying to control this, all this anger and, and negativity and just let it, let it out and just bear with it. And then one, one morning I woke up and, and I looked around and everything had a kind of light and radiance and uh, everything looked stunningly beautiful. Everything was touched with beauty and light, and it was like being on a drug or something. <laughs> and I wasn't. It was just, it was uh, the, this, 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 this uh, level of, of repression uh, had suddenly, it kind of, it's just something that reached, it, it had been liberated. And so this was a natural state of mind the purity of the mind. And it was uh, quite, you know, and I contemplated, it's like, like I'd gotten used to looking at life through a dirty window. You know how you can get used to the window and it gets grimy, increasingly more dirty and grimy, and you, you can just get used to looking through that dirty window. And then suddenly you wash the window, wash all the dirt off it, and then you, everything's very beautiful again. So then uh, that I could see just through meditation, just through, through being patient and, and accepting and, and letting it be what it is. Not, and it's not taking it on a, on a, in a personal way, but more or less just the, with this metta of accepting and and letting it be exactly that, and if I could endure, I could bear it. I was something uh, that uh, once I stopped resisting or making a problem about it, then it was all you know, bearable, and then it left. So then in contemplating, when, when I read the metta practices in the book, I didn't, it didn't, didn't mean much to me. They may I be happy. Or, uh, my mind doesn't think like that. To say, may I be happy is, to me, it doesn't inspire me. And it sounds silly. May I be happy. May I be happy. I'm too much of a cynic. You know, I'm not sweet enough to be able to really mean that. So, uh, 
because I'm a bit of a grumpy person, that so being, you know, around saying may I be happy brings out a kind of a, a, a cynical side of me. But when I started trying to just, especially contemplating the meta practices of the, where it includes everything, and what, what impressed me with meta was meta for the demons, for the for everything, you know, for the bad side as well as the good. Well, what does that really mean in terms of your own practice? I mean, you can look at it in a very abstract and a romantic way, you know, like all well, the devils in the hell realms, may they be liberated from their suffering, in terms of something that that is just an, a, a very nice idea. But in terms of, of how does that apply to my own experience when the hell realms are in here, not somewhere out there? We're down there. So then it was like the, the hell beings weren't just some kind of uh, distant <coughs> being, imagined beings uh, down in the pits of hell, but with the, the actual hellish feelings that, that, that I have in, that I can have in my own mind. I have met up for them. Then then I found that the English translation was a bit too much for me at first. Loving kindness seemed too grand. Uh, the word love in English is a it's a la- is an overused word. You know, that's used for for so many different things. So it, it you know, I have to d- redefine what I wanted to use that word for because. How I generally used it then was it means I like something. You say I love somebody, it means I like them. But then I thought of a Christian love or unconditional love. And it's Christian love is that when they talk about Christian love, that doesn't mean you like you necessarily like. So you can love somebody you don't like or love your enemies. How can you love how can you like your enemies? If somebody's trying to kill you and, and humiliate you and harm you, how can you possibly like them? I can't like my enemies. But then, well, love the enemies. Well, then how do you love your enemies? And so then began to, to look at these, these enemies inside, these nasty things going on in myself. And I couldn't like them, I didn't like them. But I could accept them with kindness, or this loving kindness, unconditional loving kindness. And I found I could do that. Then if I, just the changing of my attitude towards it was, was, uh, was all that was necessary. And so I, I just let them, unconditional loving kindness then means that as horrible as they are, you don't make any condition. You're not, you're not, it's not like emotional blackmail. Uh, I'll love you if you change your ways. <laughs> you know, if you become nice, then I will like you and I'll love you and that. But it, unconditional love, man, that you have to accept something even in its most hideous, repulsive, and 
horrific quality. So then practicing with that, with the, with my with the, you know, not not anticipating future possibilities of meeting uh, monsters uh, in some remote place at some distant future time, but just in the little cootie that I was living in, just the the negative, the the cynicism, the the uh, the the anger the resentment that would come up into consciousness, then developing an attitude of unconditional loving kindness towards, which gave me a a different way of accepting and and of letting it be that way, rather than me kind of trying to change it or make deals with it or resist it. And then the the result of that was these things tended to drop away then. It's like the, you're releasing these from a prison. I used to have this image of myself. In those days I saw myself as a kind of, some kind of ignorant uh, jail keeper. You know, and these kind of wretched beings have been locked inside you locked inside me, these miserable, wretched creatures. They're trying to get out. So they come up, and they get right into the, the door of consciousness, and then you slam it down. They're forced back into the prison. So as soon as there's anger or resentment, and negativity, you just feel they're getting too close to the door. You, you slam the door again, and, and, and they kind of drop back down. Into, into inside you, you know, they're they're locked in there, kind of fulminating and simmering in in their own misery. And every time they get out, you slam the door even harder. I think that's not. That's, you're really, you're really cruel. You're really stupid. Let them out. But then you think before, you think, well, if I let them into my consciousness, they'll take me over. I'll be possessed by them. You know, well, if, I, if I've got to keep on my guard, I've got to keep pounding them back down, making the door stronger, putting more locks on it, uh, increasing the amount of, of iron and steel and burglar alarm, <laughs> escape alarms and <laughs> everything, just to kind of arm myself against it. But then, with this idea of unconditional loving-kindness, what happened was, open the door, the consciousness, like you're letting them in, so they come become conscious. And you're letting them, they're ugly, nasty things, they don't look any, they're pretty ugly and nasty, but they're going away. And you, you, you're, you're wishing them well. You've kind of, it's like a compassionate bodhisattva. You're, you're letting them, letting them, freeing them from that miserable state of being stuck inside you, in, inside you, uh, roasting and fulminating in their own misery all for years. And then suddenly you're just liberating these wretched creatures from their misery. It's not 
that was one of my reflections on. So then, then, then I thought, well, that's wonderful to be able to do that, to be able to <coughs> free these, these wretched things from, from that miserable state they're in. And then once that, once you had that sense of, of trust in this path of liberation, then the, then you found, uh, you, you, you didn't have to be frightened of any of this, that, that they don't take you over. That they, that they're just trying to li- be liberated from this state of oppression, suppression. So in the the first noble truth, they say, dukkha. There is suffering. Suffering should be understood. So that like. The suffering you're having here now and during this retreat, see it as as, as a, it's something to really ac- totally accept your anguish or physical pain or or uh, dullness, sleepiness, or or any kind of emotions that might become negative feelings or whatever, or having a cold or a cough or whatever. See it in terms of, of like really, it's all right, you know. These things are what they are, and uh, to to really uh, to, to 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 change your attitude of of just struggling, trying to to suppress them into welcoming, into with this uh, unconditional loving kindness, accepting them for what they are. And then see what happens. See what kind of result you get. <laughs> Maybe you'll be taken over. You'll all go, you'll all go demonic on me. <laughs> I won't give this talk again. <laughs> Yang Thamma Gatha Satukarang Tathamase